2: G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, smart people have known right from the start that the two main obsessions of this federal government, climate change and an Aboriginal voice to parliament, are in reality about as useful to our national well-being as a porcupine on an inflatable life raft. Most of us knew this, but for those who didn't, the events in Israel on the weekend have finally driven the point home. Here are Palestinians celebrating the kidnapping, raping, and murder of women and children in civilians in Sydney last night.
3: Smiling and I'm happy. I'm elated. It's a day of courage. All right. All right.
2: We are living through historic and in many ways unprecedented times and what we need now are leaders with the wisdom to know what's really important, the charisma to keep us united against many common enemies and the courage to pursue what's necessary. I'll return to Israel soon, but first let's look at just how ignorant and hubristic our current government is as it tries to convince us that the voice to parliament is important. Even before the attack by Hamas barbarians in Israel on the weekend, Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers should have known that this t-shirt saying history was calling was an overstatement. History is calling all right Jim, but it's not calling you and it couldn't care less about the stupid voice to parliament. The only historic thing about this voice is that it will one day be remembered as the most divisive policy pursued by any federal government in our history, not to mention the most juvenile. Here is Prime Minister Anthony Albanese treating voters at a Yes rally like kids at a Wiggles concert last week.
4: Grow from little things, big things grow.
2: Authorised by Anthony Albanese, ALP Canberra. Such partisanship would be almost acceptable if the faithful followers in that crowd knew what they were voting for, but they don't. Neither do the people who, in the absence of adequate details, have decided to vote no. And by the way, they are now the clear majority, 58 to 34, with 8% undecided, according to today's news poll. The abusive, condescending attitude from the proponents of The Voice is one of the reasons they are failing. 24 years ago, John Howard, as Prime Minister, oversaw a referendum to decide whether Australia should ditch the monarchy. Howard disagreed with it from the start, but here he is recalling how he allowed the government to remain impartial.
3: It was a fair referendum campaign. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the mistakes that is sometimes made uh, is people claim I allowed all the the Liberals uh, to have a free vote. There was no issue of a free vote because we didn't have a government position. Mm. The government position was to have the referendum. That was the policy, and uh, it was up to um, individuals to decide how they campaign. Now, as it turned out, I think about <clears throat> seventy to eighty percent uh, of Liberal and National Party members who had a took part uh, supported the monarchy, but a, s- a significant number didn't, including three people in the leadership group. Uh, of the Senate, Richard Alston, Robert Hill and Peter Costello, and and that was their perfect right, because they weren't going against a government policy. Ironically, Howard's
2: even-handedness helped ensure he got the result he preferred. He trusted Australians to agree with him, even against the best argument his opponents could muster. He did it without causing serious fractures in Australian society, which is what Albanese is doing now. Albanese's supporters are convinced that the rest of us are racist. But how could we be racist? We are so non-racist, in fact, that this afternoon, Palestinian supporters received permission from the police to march through the centre of democratic Sydney to express their hatred for the only democracy in the Middle East. But like I said, I'll return to that in a minute. Here's another former Liberal Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, explaining what Anthony Albanese refuses to admit. And before we roll the tape, I should point out that both his and John Howard's clip are from a conference about The Voice hosted today by ADH presenter David Flint, which you can see on our website and app, and I recommend you do. Anyway, here's Tony Abbott on the implicit obligation of The Voice to Parliament.
4: Whatever the Parliament does uh, in the future, should The Voice referendum get up, whatever the Parliament does in the future, will be subject to this constitution. And that means uh, open to adjudication by the High Court. And, and it's my very strong view, and indeed the very strong view of lots of senior lawyers, that any constitutionally guaranteed right to be heard uh, implies a constitutionally guaranteed obligation to listen. Mm. Um, on the executive government and the parliament. And this is why, should the voice make representations which are, in the voice's opinion, insufficiently heeded by the parliament and or by the executive government, it will be off to the High Court and ultimately it will be the High Court that decide.
2: So once this so-called voice is in the Constitution, the High Court will eventually identify an implied obligation to listen to it. But listen to what? That is where things get even worse. Janet Albrechtson wrote in The Weekend Australian about a new report by two legal academics who found The Voice, as it's proposed, will seriously imbalance the relationship between the States and Canberra. In a nutshell, the lawyers argued that the voice panel could tell Canberra to interfere in matters that previously were the domain of the states. For example, the voice panel could go to Canberra and say there are too many Aborigines in jail, which you'd have to say is likely to be one of the first things it says. What then? Incarceration and criminal law are state matters, but this would empower Indeed, it would oblige the federal government to step in and possibly order states to release people from jail. That's just one example. The number of issues where The Voice could manipulate the federal government to override the states are almost endless. Were you told this? That The Voice could make Canberra even more powerful than it already is? Does Prime Minister Anthony Albanese even know this is a likely outcome? You'd have to say the odds are even on that one. Never never underestimate a federal politician's appetite for power. Which brings me to the other topic of tonight's editorial. How much power do these imbeciles deserve? By every measure, the more we are governed, the worse Australia becomes. Economically, socially, and, dare I say it, spiritually. One of the key contributors to this debacle has been our immigration policy, which has for decades been an absolute dog's breakfast, albeit a bipartisan one. Immigration is fraught with all sorts of technical, legal and cultural considerations, and only the finest politicians in the world can really get their heads around it. So here, for your convenience, is a sample of those fine politicians miraculously reaching the same conclusion and simplifying it for plebs like you and I.
3: Australia's diversity is a strength. India, diversity,
2: uh, our uh, diversity is a
3: strength. Our strength is our diversity. Our diversity is a strength. Our diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength.
2: Diversity is our strength. Our diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. Diversity, our strength. diversity doesn't have to be a weakness, it can be our greatest strength. Well, that strength is on vivid display in Australia right now as hordes of Palestinian sympathisers march through the centre of Sydney, past the Cenotaph on Martin Place, commemorating the millions maimed or killed defending Western civilisation, and on to the Sydney Opera House, one of the most marvellous architectural achievements of civilisation anywhere in the world, so they can chant death to the only democracy in the Middle East and cheer the kidnapping, rape and murder of Israeli women and children. Are you feeling stronger as a result, viewers? It gets worse. In another alarming piece in The Weekend Australian, foreign editor Greg Sheridan outlined how easy it would be for an aggressor to take Australia in a matter of days. Quote, if Australia were attacked tomorrow by a militarily competent power, we would have no ability to defend ourselves. It's an unlikely prospect, but an undeniably sobering reality. Unquote. Well, he goes on to say that our two air bases, which are undefended against missiles, could be taken out first, followed by our joint communications facilities and our submarine base near Perth. Then Sheridan goes on, quote, as to our surface fleet, that's the naval fleet, the attacker only has to worry about three air warfare destroyers. They can defend themselves against missiles and might survive the first round of missile attacks, maybe even the second. After that, the the enemy can keep firing missiles or take any other military action it likes. Let me repeat that, keep firing missiles or take any other military action it likes, there's nothing we could do about it." There are five reasons for our military emasculation, which Sheridan lists, and I recommend you read them on the Australian's website. Sheridan reassured his readers that the United States would not let this happen. But he failed to acknowledge that US Commander-in-Chief Joe Biden has trouble remembering which ice cream he prefers for breakfast, so finding Australia on a map might be beyond his cognitive powers. And even if he did, he'd drip melted chocolate chocolate chip all over it so he couldn't read it anyway. Also, as I've pointed out several times on this program, China, the only country likely to attack Australia, has already all but done through stealth what Japan failed to do during World War II, which is take over the Solomon Islands, a strategic barrier between Australia and the US. It's not just the Albanese government that has made us so frighteningly vulnerable, but you'd have to say that at a time of global instability and latent war, this government's digression to renewable energy and a voice to parliament borders on treasonous. Sadly, we've let these morons divide us as a country. The voice to parliament has exacerbated what previous governments and politicians had long been doing, which is try to frighten us into subservience while encouraging us to be divided and suspicious of each other. COVID, we now realise, was a slightly more virulent strain of the flu, but some Australians were so frightened of it that they snitched on their neighbours for having friends over and cops shot innocent Australians in the back with rubber bullets for the crime of wanting to be free. We were so convinced that it was a mortal threat that we allowed the government to shut our country down and lock out Australians stranded overseas. How pathetic. This is not the Australia that stood up to Japan in the 1940s. What we desperately need now are better federal politicians. My two guests tonight are definitely head and shoulders above most others. Both of these interviews were conducted last week before the attack on Israel, but you will agree that... Jacinta Nampijinpa who is often touted as a future Prime Minister, and One Nation, uh, One Nation South Australian MP Sarah Game, show more compassion and insight than any single member of the federal front bench. Well, I'm delighted to say I'll be joined in a moment by Northern Territory Senator Jacinta nampagin Price, who has not only been leading the campaign to vote no in the Voice to Parliament referendum, she has become the person most admired by lovers of equality and freedom in this country. She really has come to symbolise everything we love about Australia which is, as former, everything we love about Australia, which is, as former Prime Minister Tony Abbott calls it, an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character. If anybody knows how that idea of Australia is holding up these days and what effect this vitriolic debate is having on us as a nation, it's Senator Price. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again, Fred. Um, Jacinta, what's the impression you're getting from travelling around Australia at the moment? How rancorous has this debate become?
1: Well, I mean, I think we're hearing a lot more from, you know, the horrible sort of mudslinging and name-calling from the Yes campaign through the media and on social media. Uh, You know, at a couple of events, there have been really, you know, just naive young protesters who are, you know, predominantly uh, white, who don't appear to be Indigenous um, at all, who are, you know, call myself names and call Warren Mundine uh, names and calling us racist and those sorts of things. I think it's it's drawing out the ugly in many, but overwhelmingly there's incredible support uh, for the No campaign and an incredible sense that Australians are sick to death of and fed up with identity politics and the gaslighting, manipulation and bullying that comes with it, and are predominantly voting no because they want to say no to this sort of behaviour going forward.
2: Well, I just want to dwell on those juvenile and offensive people for a minute because one of them is Ray Martin, the former TV presenter. He called us all dickheads last week and he was given a chance the, the, the following day to retract that and declined. Now, I know you did, you did mention how abusive the yes people seem to be, what makes them so abusive, Jacinta?
1: I, uh, <laughs> they think they have a sense of moral superiority over others. Uh, and, for, I mean, really, the stupidity exists in the fact that there is no detail to this proposal, uh, that, uh, you know, people would blindly follow uh, an empty gesture, uh, something based on feelings and the vibe, and as the Prime Minister said, it'll make you feel good about yourself well, sorry, but this isn't about making someone making oneself feel good about themselves. This is about a huge constitutional amendment that has very real consequences for all Australians, let alone our most marginalized. And can I just say that I had the wonderful opportunity at being at the Elizabeth Shopping Center yesterday um, when when those comments were made, and so I've got a gift that I'll be giving to Ray Martin when I see him next. To him. Um, and there are I would rather be a dinosaur um, if that's what it takes um, yes. to bring about the vote. Yeah,
2: <laughs> suitably green too. He's a pretty green sort of character. Now talking about what changes this could raw, could could wreak on Australia, you've been critical about Indigenous culture in the past in a few speeches you've made in the Senate. You, say, you have said that Indigenous culture centres a lot on the concept of payback, which usually involves someone being speared for having committed a wrongdoing. Now, Jacinta, if the voice gets up and there is this panel of Indigenous elders or whatever they are, whoever they are, uh, are impanelled to offer advice to our federal government, which is descended from, you know, the centuries of, of British civilisation, Will that panel be uh, be informed by these kind of by some of the less sophisticated aspects of Indigenous culture?
1: Well, you know, it is quite often the powerful, the activist class that have exploited um, some of our most vulnerable who have largely denied the fact that traditional culture plays um, a a pretty prominent role in the levels of acceptance of violence within uh, those communities where violence is most prevalent. Uh, So I have no doubt whatsoever that it will be the same individuals vying for those positions of power uh, the same individuals that have sat at um, the table who have had the ear of many prime ministers over the years and pretty much been responsible for providing outcomes, the sorts of outcomes that are supposed to improve lives of Indigenous Australians, but who haven't uh, done that. But you can also you can also guess that, I mean, some of those activist types that we're hearing from, Thomas Mayo, if they can get a seat at the table as they have done in terms of shaping this whole um, voice concept and debate, then they will be jostling uh, to get to one of those positions of power and it will be their agenda um, that they will be making representations on. So it won't be about advice giving. It will be running their own agenda and we've heard from them, we've heard them talk about um, treaty, reparations, compensation, the term makarata, of course, which is um, translates to payback the young people are spearing in the leg so who is it that these individuals are proposing should be speared in the leg for what's occurred in our nation's history um it's it's really deeply concerning stuff uh which is why obviously i'm very passionate about ensuring we um we can secure a no
2: vote yeah well voice treaty and truth nobody in none of those things is there any mention really or any consideration of the people you were voted to you were elected primarily to represent and that is the women and children in aboriginal camps who are suffering daily some of the most horrific conditions anywhere in the world let alone a you know a, 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 a sophisticated and prosperous country like australia
1: yeah that that's exactly right and that's why I think it was important to launch my uh, documentary also, Yimijunga, which is on binge, uh, which was to highlight exactly what goes on in remote communities. You know, the voices of those vulnerable are sidestepped, they're ignored, they're denied um, the opportunity to be heard by the activist class, by the elites that have had a seat at the table. I mean, really, if they wanted to solve some of these problems, they would be amplifying those voices, um, not the voices of organisations that are funded millions of dollars every year um, to, you know, fail in terms of providing outcomes, but it's those voices of grassroots individuals on the ground. And it is those individuals who don't support this because they haven't been heard so far by uh, those organisations that are supposed to represent them. Uh, So they don't trust that this this voice entity will in any way, uh, you know, support their views or allow for them to be heard. They're not advocating for them now. They haven't done so in
2: the past. So why would they suddenly change if they're going to be constitutionally enshrined? You said earlier that you're encountering a lot of Australians who are just sick to death of all this identity politics and of course this debate. Now, Jacinta, assuming that all those people do uh, do form the majority and uh, kick this uh, referendum proposal into the dustbin of history, What is your advice to people who vote no about bringing the two cultures together? I mean, Australians do have enormous goodwill to our Indigenous brothers and sisters. They want the best for them as part of the modern Western civilization that is Australia. How do we reconcile them once this debate is over and this referendum is over?
1: And look, there's going to be a lot of work to be done in that area and the Prime Minister has to take responsibility for the incredible divide that he's created through this referendum. The fact that the issue of race is front and centre, that it's bringing out the ugliness of, you know, some Australians in this country, he has to take responsibility for that. But... I mean, I have a lot of faith in the Australian people. We were on a trajectory that was about ensuring we, we accepted everyone no matter what our backgrounds were, which is what we have done as a nation uh, going forward. And I think we just have to maintain that dignity and also um, reignite our wonderful Australian values, our Aussie spirit, that which we share that, the, you know, the, the amazing shared Australian culture and shared Australian values that we've all contributed to from many different backgrounds. and beliefs. Believe in ourselves as a country again. Teach our children to be proud to call themselves Australian. Don't teach our kids, you know. Don't allow for our preschool teachers to um, force our kids into writing sorry letters to Indigenous Australians. You know, teaching our kids that they're oppressors and and that they should apologise to victimise Indigenous Australians who have no agency. I mean, that is just pathetic. It's wrong. Uh, and we've got to move away from that thinking and doing as a country in order for us to be, uh, you know, feel a sense of belonging again to one another. And and that's what I encourage Australians to do because yeah. they're willing- Backlash. If we if no gets up, there will be a backlash by the likes of Langdon, by the likes of Pearson, by those who have been pushing this on the Australian people, and it might just get even more ugly. But we have to maintain our dignity and our respect and our, for one another and our love for this country.
2: Well said, Jacinta. I can see you will have a huge role leading up to the referendum and an even huger one afterwards. I look forward to uh, having you back on the show. Then thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Fred. That's Jacinta Price uh, making time in her incredibly busy schedule for us here at ADH-TV.
5: Introducing the co-host of Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously, it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He'd been on my back for years to do this with him. So in the end, I just said yes.
2: Yeah, Nick told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago, and I thought... Couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead?
5: You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just the knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it. Just get below the surface of each issue.
2: Oh yeah, Nicky is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything.
5: I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf. You know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, oh, oh! Hang on.
2: It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow?
5: Well, obviously, Fred. Fred asked me to host it. He's, you know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor.
2: Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you?
5: Search Spotify for Parting Shots, the podcast by Fred Paul and Nick Cater. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, Click on the store and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv Hello world, it's Daisy Cousins here and I'm
0: pleased to inform you that I am now appearing on ADH TV every week twice a week for your viewing pleasure. So make sure you tune in to my two shows where I am interviewing some of the most interesting people on the planet, as well as covering all the latest in news and current events. Make sure you tune in. I can't wait to see you there.
2: Now, I just want to stay on the voice topic for a moment here because my next guest is another impressive conservative woman, Sarah Game, the One Nation member of the Upper House in the South Australian Parliament. The South Australian Lower House convened on March 26 this year, which was a Sunday because this was a religious occasion for some people, to pass a law creating a state-based voice to Parliament. Labor Premier Peter Malinowskis told the state's States House of Assembly that, quote, this is a momentous piece of legislation for our First Nations people, unquote. Well, let's get Sarah Game in to discuss that very point, as well as her other political focus, which is men's welfare. Sarah, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much.
2: Sarah, I think Premier Malinowskis gave the game away when he said the bill that was passed in March was momentous for, for First Nations people. Shouldn't it be momentous for all South Australians?
0: I think that's such. I think that's such a good point. And actually, I don't think it's uh, momentous either for First Nations or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. It might be momentous for the hundred or so uh, people who Um, are said to be part of the state-based voice, but it's certainly, I don't think, going to be momentous for anyone else. I mean, it's a really sad situation, actually, because I would say the majority of South Australians are really just realising now that they're being asked to vote on this federal voice, that we actually have already stealthily um, and without consultation legislated our own state-based voice. And I just want to be clear that I think that it's been... Deliberately misleading and manipulative from the very beginning, it should really never have been able to be called the voice because uh, it's played on the compassion of people. People want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to have a voice. Uh, obviously, I mean they already have a voice, um, but that's not what they—that's not what we did in the South Australian Parliament. What we did was pass a piece of legislation that guarantees resourcing and payment for certain individuals. It has nothing to do with improving the lives of vulnerable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and it has nothing to do with um, enhancing their voice in a meaningful way.
2: Well, I mean, it, it hasn't done much at all, to, to be honest, because <coughs> it hasn't, pardon me, <coughs> it hasn't gone to the next stage. The next stage, Sarah, is the hard bit. You've got to get Aboriginal people to register so they can elect Uh, this voice panel into formation. Yes. And this is fraught with problems. I mean, who gets to vote? How do they prove they're Aboriginal? How will these elections be held? What sort of campaigns will the candidates run? Will the campaigns get heated, as elections always do these days? And will all this reveal the awkward truth that no Aborigine speaks for all others and therefore the voice is pointless? But... Malinowskis has postponed all of this till after the referendum for the Federal Voice to Parliament. It's a bit suspicious, isn't it, Sarah?
0: It really is. Yes, it's all gone quiet here on the state-based uh, voice for the moment. They have said, though, that they definitely will be going ahead with the elections uh, next March. I mean, I've got my own piece of legislation that I'll be putting forward to actually ask to repeal uh, the state-based voice, which I think is particularly re- relevant if the referendum is... Um, uh, fails, which I expect it will. But either way, I don't think we need to be having a state-based voice with a federal-based voice. Um, but the government here has decided that regardless of the outcome of the referendum, they're going to go ahead with the elections in March. With regards to who can vote, I mean, firstly, it's not compulsory to vote, which I think... Um, you know, is already fraught with problems. And as long as you identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and you're prepared to sign um, a declaration that you are in fact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, you're good to go uh, to vote in those elections next year.
2: Oh, it's, it's, it's got problems written all over it. Do, do you think the government foresaw what sort of uh, problems that they were creating by just, you know, by all the ambiguities of this, uh, of this idea?
0: I, I don't think it's gone down how they expected. I mean, the Premier, you know, all leading up to this, you know, when he would announce, and I'd be at various events about how excited he was to have the state-based voice, I don't feel he could read the room at all. You know, I'd look around and you could just see, uh, you know, horror and disappointment really on everybody's faces as he proudly announced that we were going ahead with this. And I remember coming out in February when it was really taboo then to say that you were against uh, the state-based voice and nobody was really talking about it. But now it's become, you know, I think it's definitely the opinion of the majority of people. But we managed to legislate here. I just thought it was quite remarkable that we legislated this piece of legislation that has... Really, no uh, facts to it. It just basically says, you know, there'll be a certain number of regions, no numbers are stipulated. There'll be a certain number of people involved, no numbers are stipulated. Um, but they'll all be resourced. I mean, we've already got uh, four committees that will have 55 uh, members on them. And interestingly, the legislation actually stipulates that if you are part of the state based voice, you cannot be a member of one of the committees, which is obviously completely different to normal parliament. You know, we've got parliamentary members also on those committees, whereas the legislation here states, no, if you're part of the state-based voice, where currently there will be at least 46 members, I believe, then you can't be part of these uh, committees, of which we already have 55 additional members. But it's also very easy to create more committees. So the state-based voice... All those committees feel they really need to create more committees, they really just need to have a conversation with the Attorney General and they're good to go. We
2: are, we are sold all these ideas on the promise that they will make Australian society more, uh, less divided, more unified. How, what's the effect been in South Australia since March?
0: exactly sorry and it's it really is no laughing matter but it's really just been it's actually been very sad i mean there was that event recently held here at the convention center where uh Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine came and tried to talk about the no position, and obviously they were heavily abused. We've had a number of protests. But not only has there been that public division, but certainly I know that within friendships, within families, within workplaces, within society in general, has been it's been hugely divisive. And I just want to mention uh, on that in terms of making lives better, I think it's interesting that we've got such an incredible... Uh, like big body of people, uh, all with guaranteed resourcing, with really no demands on them. I mean, the legislation makes it very clear that they do not need to make parliamentary reports or attend parliament. So if parliament feels that we do need the advice of the state-based voice and we would like to hear their opinion, well, really, they can't be compelled to do that. <sighs>
2: It's got problems written all over it. We'll look forward to more commentary on this topic from you, Sarah, because you are very much at the coalface. Now, let's talk about the other topic you are focusing on at the moment, which is men's rights and men's wellbeing. In my opinion, men's rights were dealt a major blow uh, just recently when all the state and federal attorneys general met in Perth just over a week ago and agreed on a new concept called coercive control. Essentially, this is the state meddling in the personal affairs of ordinary people. But it's worse than that because it redefines normal personal relationships as potentially illegal. Here's how the Federal Attorney General Mark Dreyfus's office explains it.
1: Coercive control can involve physical and non-physical abuse and is almost always found in cases of family and domestic violence.
2: Now, Sarah, you might notice the subtle conflation there. Coercive control can be, quote, unquote, physical and non-physical, but then it is conflated with, quote, unquote, domestic violence. Sarah, what do you think is going on here?
0: Well, firstly, I mean, I found that video, I actually couldn't believe that they've produced that video. I mean, it's really clear in that video that really men are the perpetrators Um, and that women are the victims. And I I take real exception to that, particularly when we're looking at, um, as you said, I've been trying to advocate as best I can for men and men's welfare. I mean, men take their lives uh, much more often than women and they live shorter lives and less healthy lives. And there's a lot of research to um, really show that one of those reasons is the breakdown of these relationships and the way that men are in fact suffering within a relationship. So, so to produce a video uh, to show men as the perpetrators um, and women as the victims when we know factually um, that men in fact are suffering, I would say, more, particularly as a result of relationship breakdown, I think that's really, really wrong. And the government seemed to want to address, you know, what they're calling coercive control. but. Nobody wants to talk about parental alienation or the way in which many men are uh, isolated um, from their children. And I would say uh, through manipulative and uh, wrong tactics that, in fact, if they don't perform certain activities or give in a certain way, they won't see the child. I mean, I know that this happens for a fact.
2: Yeah, that's clear. Well, that's not the message that we are getting from the Attorney General's office, who, uh, as I said earlier, convened that message of all the state attorneys general, and they all came out agreeing about this new concept of coercive control. Now, the perpetrators are clear. It goes on in that video. Let's watch this.
1: Coercive control can happen in intimate partner relationships even after they've ended. It can also happen in family relationships. Coercive control can be used against anyone but is mostly used by men against women.
2: Mostly used by men against women. This is just another instalment in the war against men, isn't it, Sarah?
0: It really is. I can't believe it, actually. I mean, that's completely... um not based in fact or evidence in fact there's a lot of evidence to suggest um that i would say that a lot of men are being or feeling controlled by women i mean to the point that they're actually taking their life after the breakdown of relationships so i take real exception at that video it's actually really really wrong i mean we've actually i didn't set out to be a men's advocate by the way i mean i just set out to try and make the best of my position but what happened was I gave a very short speech, only a few minutes in Parliament, about men and um, their needs, and hundreds of thousands of people viewed it, which was really uh, <coughs> a for me at that time. And suddenly I started being recognised. I'd be down the beach with my children and, you know, a man would walk up and say, thank you so much for that video. My local barista, who'd never taken any interest in me, uh, said, oh, are you that woman on the video talking about men and men's uh, health? And I realised, wow, there's a real need for this, uh, isn't there? And the more that I looked into it, the more obvious that became. I mean, even down to the fact, as I think I mentioned to you, we're organising the only celebration in the whole state of International Men's Day on November 19th because it became apparent to me last year when I started going to uh, various events that I got a whole number of events at the Adelaide Oval, the Governor's House, and all sorts of things for International Women's Day. And uh, I thought, wow, when was International Men's Day or when is it coming up? And then we realised, oh, no, that already passed last November. I didn't get a single invitation. There wasn't a single event. And you can think it's a small thing, but I think if we're not even prepared to do something as basic as that, it actually speaks volumes. I mean, here in this state, I've been advocating for an office for men and uh, a minister for men. And some people say, well, we shouldn't need that because... Um, everyone in parliament should be advocating for both both sexes but we can see clearly that's not happening there's much more investment towards women's health um, and women's policies we have an office for women here i haven't been able to find out how much money is spent uh, on the office for women but i'm certainly on the hunt to find out and uh, we really need uh, a change and improvement because the reality is you very few women, I mean, there will be a small cohort of women, I believe, but very few women are against this idea because most women, we need good men. We need good, healthy, uh, positive men. And most women that I speak to are really supportive uh, of the agenda of trying to advocate for men better because they've got a husband, a brother or a son that they can see is being affected by the way society is going at the moment.
2: Yeah, well, society is going in one direction and uh, it seems to be dragged in that direction by things like the attorneys general agreeing that men are, you know, most often, that you can conflate this so-called coercive control, which is just ordinary relations between men and women inside a household that has nothing to do with the state. You can conflate that with the criminal act of domestic violence. and and portray men as being, you know, all, nearly all men, as being perpetrators of, of some sort of crime. Now, you're saying that men are actually crying out for more help and, are, you know, as the statistics say, that three quarters of suicides in Australia are men. Uh, you've been touched by suicide yourself. Your your dad, Rob, committed suicide earlier this year at the age of 71, I won't ask you to dwell on that, but. You, are, you have been touched by it and uh, you, are, you seem to be the, the person, uh, the only person in South Australia who is concerned about it. What is your event at the, uh, for International Men's Day? What is it hoping to achieve and how can people get involved?
0: Exactly. Well, they can look, obviously, if they look up me on social media, there'll be a link uh, to book or otherwise they can look at uh, trybooking.com and search International Men's Day. It's the only um, event, as I said, it will be held at the Norwood Football Club. Unfortunately, they also lost a young member there in his 20s um, to suicide as well. Uh, on the on November the nineteenth, which is International Men's Day, and look, the whole event. I mean, I just woke up in the middle of the night. You know, kept up by a whole lot of things, um, uh, doing too much as most people are. And I just thought, what can I actually do here? There were so many roadblocks. Uh, towards advocating for men in Parliament. And I just decided, look, that's it, I'm organising this event. And to be honest, within about five minutes it really came together. You know, I rang the CEO of Nord Football Club. He said, absolutely, he's in, would offer the venue. Uh, We've got some really great speakers. We've got Chris McDermott, you know, former AFL legend but also founder of the Little Heroes Foundation for seriously ill children and their families with unmet needs. We have Jim Wally, a former Royal Australian Air Force fighter pilot, coming to speak. I've got a professor, um, Gary Wittett, from the University of Adelaide who'll be talking as well and so we had all these real um you know top quality people just say yes 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 and uh we sold about 100 tickets really quickly um and so we've still got a a, a 20 or so left but um it's a couple of months away so I'm really excited that it it should sell out and be an amazing event and I, I don't want it to be uh I want it to be a real celebration actually uh of men rather than a sort of Uh, dwelling on the problems that do afflict men. There will be a bit of that. But I think we need to acknowledge, you know, the real pivotal role that men play in their family life, you know, in work life, certainly in our defence force, you know, the majority of people putting their hand up to defend Australia are men. Uh, And so I'm hoping it's going to be a celebratory event that creates a positive atmosphere. And you did mention my dad earlier, but certainly something that motivates me is my son. You know, I have an eight-year-old son and uh, I want him growing up feeling proud and good, um, you know, to be a boy and then a man. That's really important to me.
2: It wasn't so long that those ideas were commonplace, but you seem to be revolutionary in, in, uh, in, in being a proponent for them now, Sarah. Thank you so much for everything you do, and I look forward to having you back on the show real soon.
0: Thank you so much.
2: That's South Australian One Nation MP, Sarah Game. And if you or someone you know is having problems with life and is struggling to find ways of hanging in there, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Even in the darkest despair, you must remember there's always hope. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pello, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at 7pm. Good night.